0: Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And as you turn, perhaps you've heard the story of the local bar patrons who were so sure that their bartender was the strongest man around town that they offered a standing bet of $1,000. The bartender would squeeze a lemon until all of the juice ran into a glass And then he would hand the lemon over to a contender. And anyone who could squeeze just one more drop of juice out of that lemon would win the $1,000. Many people had tried, no one had succeeded. Weightlifters, longshoremen, firefighters, no one was stronger than the bartender. One day, a short, thin, balding little man came through the doors of the bar wearing black, thick-rimmed glasses and a double-knit polyester suit. He looked like a throwback from 1976. And he announced to the bartender in a faint, tiny, squeaky little voice, I'd like to take the bet. The whole bar erupted in laughter. And As the laughter had finally died down, the bartender said, okay. And he grabbed a lemon and he squeezed away. Drip after drip after drip filled the glass. And when he was finished, he handed this dry, wrinkled remains of the lemon rind to this little man. The man clenched his fist around the lemon and the crowd began to laugh again. But their laughter was turned to silence as one drop fell into the glass and then another and then another, six drops in total. And as the crowd cheered, the bartender paid the man $1,000 in cash and he asked him, Before you go, I have to know, what do you do for a living? You're obviously not a lumberjack. (laughs) You're obviously not a weightlifter. What is it that you do? And with an almost imperceptible wry smile that came across the little man's face, he replied in a quiet, satisfied voice, I'm an accountant for the IRS. (laughs) An accountant is one who sometimes can seemingly make it happen. They're the one who works for a business or a corporation and they take record of all of the currency that is going in and out of the business. Good businesses hire an accountant to make sure that what they spent is spent properly and that which comes in, comes in as it should be. Without an accountant, a business could misallocate its resources. The accountant is there. Somebody hires an accountant to make sure that they're allocated according to plan. And that is an important job. As you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is doing a little accounting. He's addressing an accusation that he is coming to Corinth to leech off of them for his own gain. And he speaks to them in terms of currency that needs to be allocated properly, but it's not the currency of money. He's a different type of accountant. This is the currency of life. And He wants to make sure that he is allocating this currency properly in his own life. And he wants to make sure that all of those who claim Jesus as their Savior are doing the same. Because failure to do so would mean that their ministry wasn't authentic. But faithfulness in allocating these resources would verify the authenticity of this ministry. And so listen to what he says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 11, he says to them, I have been a fool, and you forced me to do it, for I ought to have been commended by you, but I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here, for a third time, I'm ready to come to you. I will not be as a burden to you, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not act, take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we were, have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. And perhaps there may be quarreling or jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who had sinned earlier. And have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they had practiced. Paul is writing to show the Corinthians that the nature of authentic gospel ministry is being done in their midst. And he's doing so up against the backdrop of those who are promoting a false gospel and sowing discord throughout the congregation. He's worried that when he returns that they won't find him as they should and he won't find them as they should, i.e., we don't get along. (laughs) And in verses 11 through 13, Paul solidifies his defense of his apostleship by reminding them that the actions that he had done among them pointed to the fact that he was doing godly, powerful things that these quote-unquote super apostles could not do. He was doing them despite the fact that he was still a weak man. And so he reminds them that he performed signs and wonders and mighty works. And as one scholar says, the signs authenticated the message. Wonders evoked awe in the hearers. And the mighty works manifested divine power. Paul, as other apostles had done, performed miracles among these people. And in the first century, God used those miracles to authenticate this message. But he didn't do so in a way that was overwhelming to them. He was patient with them, he says, in the midst of their opposition to him. And he there goes on to describe his motive for ministering among them. He says that he is preparing to come back to them for a third time. And that even in and of itself is astonishing to think about. Because as we've talked about in previous weeks, This ministry of the gospel among this church has had very mixed results to this point. There have been people who professed faith in Jesus and followed him, there have been people who professed faith in Jesus but were not following a true gospel. And there were people in this church that were lying about and sowing seeds of discord with regard to Paul. They were attacking his motives. They were accusing him of not charging for speaking publicly among them because he was probably skimming money out of the collection for the poor. They accused him of acting like Judas, (laughs) who when nobody was looking, took money out of the disciples' money bags. And it's amazing that he would go back to them yet a third time because most people I know would say in a situation like this, fine, if you don't want what I'm giving you but you would rather just attack me and malign my character, then I'll leave you to whatever happens to you and I will go on down the road to the next group of people Who will receive this incredible life saving message that I'm giving you? That's how most people would act. But Paul doesn't do that. He continues to go back to them again. And in doing so, he reveals his true motives. These are the motives for gospel ministry, they're not just the motives for an apostle though they are, they're also the motive for any Christian that wants to serve God with his or her life. He communicates these motives in terms of spending and saving, in terms of currency, in terms of accounting. And he says in verse 14, I seek not what is yours, but you, I know that some of you have accused me of stealing money from you or trying to have the motive of theft, but I don't want something from you. I want you. Seeking people is the true motive for ministry. Friends, that's so important to recognize because there are a lot of ideas out there about what ministry actually is, but at its very core, ministry is about God and his works and his ways that are communicated in his word, and it's for his glory to people. (laughs) And There are a number of reasons why it's important to just meditate on that short little statement. The first one is that it helps us to examine our own motives when we think about serving other people around us because history is replete with examples of people who start out with great motives They communicate the things of God. They have a genuine love for others. But as they gain influence over other people, the temptation to just take for themselves is so strong that they can't help themselves. And so what is initially good turns into something self-serving. And that is a temptation for everyone who influences others in these most important things. And so that's why we're told to examine ourselves lest we fall prey into that very same temptation of wanting to take from others. Secondly, the reason why it's helpful to understand true ministry motives is because sometimes you will hear something that a gospel worker says, something that is from the scripture, and something you don't like. (laughs) And if you trust their motives, then you have to examine whether or not you will remain teachable to the scriptures and conform to them. And if you don't trust their motives, you almost will always dismiss in hand and say, well, that person is just out to get something for me. But friends, you need to know, you need to understand. And I recognize even in our church, there are things that I say up here from this platform that you don't like to hear That are from the word of God. That's what God does and how he works and continues to grind down the rough edges of our life. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 talks about this. It says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intention of the heart. What does that mean? It means that when you come up against God's word, there are times where it will pierce you (laughs) in a way that might not feel so good at the beginning. And yet, at those moments, when God confronts us, we have a choice to make. Do we remain teachable and conform ourselves to the scriptures or are we not teachable and expect the scriptures or the messenger to conform to us. And so Paul says to have clear motives in the middle of this is so important because it helps us remain teachable. I don't want to take something from you, he says in the midst of hard words. I want something for you. And I don't want just something for you, I want you. I want you to know God and to love him and to experience all of the fullness that you can experience by following him with your life. That's what I want. (laughs) And that leads to the third reason why this is so important to consider. It's an accounting of that of greatest value. Paul points to the fact that when you understand the hierarchy of true worth and value then it would be absurd to think that he is just going after their money because money's not that valuable when he could actually have them. (laughs) Things are utterly subordinate but life your will, your mind, your heart are infinitely superior. I know a lot of people say they believe that, that stuff is subordinate. But friends, there are a lot less that actually live like it. And if you want to serve Jesus, then your goal needs to shift in this life from the accumulation of things. It needs to shift toward focusing on people. Paul communicates this motive for ministry in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. I think 2 Corinthians 12 is probably my favorite expression of it. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 is probably a close second. He says in chapter 2 verse 8 to a different church about the same ideas in ministry so being affectionately desirous of you we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us And then he just says in a couple verses later in verse 19, what is our hope and our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Jesus is coming back soon. We want to be able to present to him the thing that is going to make him the greatest glory, that's going to make him infinitely happy, that is going to display that we were faithful to him in this life. What is the thing that is going to display his incredible worth? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. Serving God means that you give yourself first to the Lord and in doing so you give yourself to other people seeking their very souls for God. And that is the reason why Paul did that, the very reason why you can do that is because you understand that things are utterly subordinate in the hierarchy of worth and value. People are infinitely more valuable. And so Paul displays that he has a motive and this motive is not just all talk, that this motive actually has action to it. And we see that true ministry action is expressed in verse 15. Look at it with me. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love that expression. Paul is talking about the currency in which Christians deal. This currency that we deal in is not physical money. Our currency is time, effort, devotion, and it leads to, as he says, the procurement of souls to God. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid for them, for those souls, for your soul on the cross. That if you feel distant from God, you feel like there's no way back to God. You feel, as Jason felt, as expressed this morning, that what shall I do to be saved? That Jesus paid, he procured on the cross... A ransom for your soul. That's the good news of the gospel. A ransom is very simply the exchange of something of currency for a life. And in this case, the payment was his life for yours. And now those who serve him utilize this most profound currency of life to participate in the transactions of souls to God. I can think of nothing more loving, nothing more generous than a person who chooses to spend and to be spent for souls of other people. That's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. They look at the world around them. They look at the mechanisms of currency. They account for their life, and they choose to spend, but not for stuff that they're going to keep, not for their own comfort. They're spending for souls. That's what I'm trying to do with my life, albeit quite imperfectly. I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years in a couple of different roles. That is 5,475 days. 780 Sundays spent for souls. If the Lord allows me to serve full time until I'm 70, I hope He allows me longer than that. But if it's till 70, that means I have a lot more to spend and to be spent. Another 9,855 days. (laughs) That sounds tiring. Another 1,404 Sundays with God's people. But here's the thing. You don't need to be in full-time ministry to spend and to be spent for the souls of other people. Without a doubt, God is calling some of you to be in full-time ministry, to change your career, to reallocate your life, to focus on this great call of expenditure for souls at some period. But God is calling all of you to spend and to be spent for other people. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to spend and be spent? Most of you have a variety of responsibilities. You have a full-time job, you have a family, you have activities, you have hobbies. You have a variety of things that you want to do in this life. And the temptation might be to say, I can only spend and be spent for God if I just give it all to him right now in a glorious self-sacrificial transaction to pay the ultimate price of turning away from every reality of this world and going out into the bush and to a people who don't know him to go down in a blaze of glory of martyrdom in his name. I'll do that, God. If that's what you are calling me to do, I will do it to go out in this blaze of glory. We... Can tend to think when we hear great stories of people that the Lord is using. It's like taking a one thousand dollar bill, laying it on the table, and saying, "Here's my life, God. I'm giving it all right now." But the reality is, for most of us, that He sends us to the bank to cash in the one thousand dollars in quarters. And to go home with a very large bag of quarters and then to spend the rest of your days putting 25 cents here and 50 cents there and a dollar there and another 25 cents over here recognizing of course that the whole bag is God's but you're allocating it, you're spending it down 25 cents at a time and you do so by doing things like listening to the neighbor kid who can't talk to his own parents about his troubles and when he's hanging out at your house you just really want to say in your flesh get lost those problems are your problems not my problems but you listen and give him counsel anyway 25 cents or you spend 50 cents by inviting your coworker to your growth group, but you don't just invite them to the growth group to let them sort of flounder in the sea of the unknown. You follow up with her regularly and you ask how she's doing for the sake of her well-being and for the Lord and you are spending in that moment. Or you pray for the parents of your kid's friend on their baseball team and then you look for an opportunity at the field to inquire about something real in their life so that once you start to talk about real things in their life, you can maybe start to talk about spiritual things in your life and maybe their life and then over the course of building and spending yourself down, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them and see how God might work and you spend and you grow in your focus and you grow in your desire for others and the rhythms of and patterns of your life begin to change and you spend and you do this over and above your natural inclination which is to supply your own comfort. Because usually, usually giving your life to Christ isn't this newsworthy internet sensation glorious video it's done in little actions of love and persistence and intentionality 25 cents at a time it'd be easy to go in a flash of glory it's harder i think to live little by little over the long haul and gladly spend and be spent, spend it all for your soul and the souls around you. And so Paul is pointing to authentic ministry. He's saying that this type of ministry for Christians occurs when a person spends and is spent for the souls of others. True ministry motives Not something from you, but you. (laughs) True ministry action, spending and being spent for others. And then he moves to the end of the chapter and talks about what we might call true ministry aspiration. Look at verses 19 through 21. He says this. He says, he's talking about at this point past engagements that they've had and his future of coming to them again and he's trying to smooth some things over and make clear what his aspiration is. He says this, "Have you been thinking all along that we've been trying to defend ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved, for I fear that perhaps when I come I may not find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, and perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who had sinned earlier and have not repented from impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. He tries to smooth over this relational tension. He doesn't want to come and to get into a fight with them. He doesn't want them to think less of him. He doesn't want to think less of them, but he gives them the aspiration in verse 19. We've been speaking all of these things to you for your building up all of the hard things we've talked to you is for your good, it's for your building up. All of the combating with the false apostles, it's for your upbuilding. We don't have to defend ourselves. God knows who we are and what we are on about. We are doing this for you. It's for your building up. Now sometimes we think that building somebody up is maybe we view it in a flat sense. Building somebody up is equal. synonymous with giving somebody encouraging words. That's what we often think. And encouraging words are incredibly powerful, aren't they? When you have somebody who is sincere and speaks direct encouragement into your life about something they see in you, man, that's that's a powerful reality. William Ward once said it this way. He said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you, but encourage me and I will not forget you. (laughs) But here, we see that building up others is not just encouraging words. Because it's interesting to note, immediately after he gives this aspiration to build them up, that he expresses his fear that they will continue sinning or have fallen back into sin, even grievous sin of immorality, sexual immorality, impurity and sensuality they had previously engaged in. So building up not only means encouraging someone, but it also means helping them to turn away from the very sins that they are engaged in in rebellion to God and pointing them and walking alongside with them to a better way of living for the sake of their good and God's glory. That's what it means to build somebody up, to be patient and to walk alongside and to engage, not in a condescending sort of way, but to say, hey, if you claim you want Christ and you want all of the benefits of God, let me build you up by consistently engaging with you toward faith and faithfulness to him. That is another way of saying, I want to spend And be spent for your soul. Authentic ministry comes when a Christian, a person, spends and is spent for the souls of other people. What are you spending and being spent on? I'm sure there are a variety of ways that you could answer that question. You could answer it in terms of relationships, time, your career, your family, your money, your activities. Here's the heart of it. What takes your greatest attention, your most sincere efforts, and your affections, and how, does, how do those things correspond to your actions in life? Because most people have to work a full-time job, <laughs> and, and God is still calling us to engage in this type of expenditure practically in an ongoing way. And so maybe one way to say it is that You can have a full-time job and a great career, but your life's work is not that job. (laughs) Your life's work, what defines you by way of your output and action is actually spending for the souls of people. Today in our church we have a business owner who at any moment would stop anything he was doing. To serve the Lord, by serving other people, <laughs> being spent for their souls. He runs a successful business, but that's not what he's spending his life on. He's spending it on people. A long time ago, one of my close friends, a great husband, father of four, a medical doctor who ran his own practice, was serving with me in a prior context and after engaging in a hard conversation with a brother who was struggling, I thanked him and we were talking about it and he looked at me with a quizzical look on his face and he said, of course, this is my life's work. (laughs) The other stuff I just do to make money, to provide for my family. I was taken aback that this really successful Guy thought that serving the Lord by serving people in his church was his life's work. To talk about it in that sort of grandiose language. It was clear, it was direct, and it was clearly undergirded by his conviction. And I've never forgotten that. It's always stuck with me. He was spending and being spent for souls, (laughs) What are you spending and being spent on? Over the years, I've had the privilege to talk to a lot of people at the different crossroads of life as they're considering and evaluating who they are, and what they've done, and what they want to do. And one of the reoccurring themes in our culture, at least in my ministry, has been people who have spent much of their life on something else, and in their later years, they realize that they were spending on something of subordinate worth. They were Men, often around 60 years old, and they had made their money, they had paid for their house, they had career success, their kids were out and off and running, and now in the final third, they realized that the things that they were spending on weren't the things of the highest value, and they wanted to do anything that they could to spend the last third of their days, should the Lord give them that many more, on things of superior worth. What are you spending and being spent on? There was a young man who some years ago lay dying in his bed. His mother believed him to be a Christian and he was greatly surprised and distressed. She was when one day passing his room, she heard him say, lost, lost, lost. And immediately she opened the door and she cried to her son, my boy, is it possible that you have lost your hope in Christ now that you are dying? And he said, no, no, mother, no, it, it's not, that's not it. I have hope beyond the grave, but I've lost my life. 24 years I have lived and done nothing for the son of God. And now I am going My life has been spent for the self. I've lived for this world. And now, while dying, I've given myself to Christ. But my life is lost. And we ask, what are you spending and being spent on? You know, in the ancient days, when the king of Siam had an enemy, he wanted to torment and destroy, he would send that enemy a very unique gift, a white elephant, a live albino elephant. Next Christmas, you will not think of your white elephant gift exchange the same. These animals were considered obviously incredibly rare, and because they were so rare, they were considered to be sacred in many cultures of that day. And so the recipient of that elephant had no choice but to intentionally care for the gift. The elephant would take an inordinate amount of the enemy's time, resources, energy, emotions, and finances, and over time, the enemy would ultimately destroy himself because of the extremely burdensome process of caring for the white elephant. You know, our spiritual enemy uses a similar strategy on us. Let's say that you could do any number of pretty good things. You could buy season tickets to your favorite sports team but because you still have a lot of games left to go to, you no longer have time to serve the Lord in an area of ministry. Or let's say that you buy a summer cottage up by the lake, and now you miss most of the weekend worship services between the end of May and the beginning of September. Or let's say you buy a gym membership because you want to get in shape, which is a really good thing, and you used to get up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray, but now you don't have time anymore because you go to work out before work. Or... Let's say that your son or your daughter makes the travel sports team because they're really good and because of that traveling sports team, now you're too busy to join a growth group or to grow in community with others or to help your kids do the same. Are there white elephants in your life? Spending the money is not really the issue. But are there things that activities that are good, and they're not necessarily the problem, but the problem is that the white elephant gift, that you think is a gift, actually pulls you away from the pursuit of the highest worth and value. What are you spending and being spent on? What kind of accounting do you need to do? Authentic ministry occurs when a person spends and is spent for the souls of other people. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so tempted. To spend on the things of subordinate worth. God, I want my life to be of the greatest consequence. I know so many here want their lives to matter, to be of the greatest consequence, to get to the end of our days and to hear you say, Well done, to get to the end of our days and look back at the train of souls that are influenced because we spent it all for them. God, help us to see how to do that, because everybody in here has a different life and a different set of responsibilities, different dynamics and different skills and abilities, but all of us are called to spend in this way. God, help us to do that. Encourage us as we go. Help us to help each other to do that. And may you receive glory and honor for all eternity through men and women who have spent well. For the sake of your son Jesus, we pray. In gratitude for his ransom. Amen.